Good morning, Mountain Park. Merry Christmas. Seven days left. You understand that? Seven days. Some adults perhaps need to be reminded of that. Kids, no. Kids know exactly how many days it is. How many of you, if you wouldn't mind, raise your hands. How many of you want Christmas to be great? Most hands. Good for you. you want, I'd, I'd like to talk to some of you who didn't raise your hand. But basically, we want Christmas to be great. We want there to be great parties. If we're hosting a party, we want it to be great at our house. We want the food to be great. We want the tree to look great. We want the decorations on our homemade cookies to look just great. We want the responses of our kids on Christmas morning to be just great. Or perhaps we want our kids to say, thank you, Dad, for this board game that you got me instead of the iPad that I asked for. Thank you so much. We want our, our personal interactions to be great. We want, uh, you know, as we get together with families, and perhaps you're going to fly somewhere and be with families, or family, families are going to come and join you here. We want those interactions to be great, and we want things to go well. Even though your uncle typically has a little too much to drink, we want that whole thing to just be great. Typically, we don't want to have a forgettable Christmas. We want to have a great Christmas, but... What if our pursuit of greatness at Christmas sometimes gets in the way of the small things? What if our pursuit of the great, perfect things of Christmas get in the way of the small things? What if the Christmas story is really more about the small things than it is the big things? This year, our series heading into Christmas is we're looking at the original Christmas cast. We're looking at different characters in the story. And this morning, the character that we're looking at is Herod the Great. For those of you who are familiar with the story, you might be wondering why the week before Christmas would anyone want to talk about Herod the baby killer? Uh, What kind of a pastor, what kind of a person would do that? My name is Alan. Good morning. Uh, So glad that you're here. Herod was called Herod the Great. But he was a very disturbed man. He was a very disturbed soul who missed the power of the small things that were going on around him. Hopefully we will not do that this Christmas. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, once again, we are thankful for your story, thankful for the beauty of it, the wonder, and the power of it, God. And I pray that wherever we are in this room, whatever's going on, whatever distractions, wherever we are in our journey with you, that your story would come alive, that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me give you just a little bit of context, kind of the circumstances that we uh, surround ourselves with as we enter into the story of the birth of Jesus. First century Palestine was ruled by a person called a Herod, and they were the kings of that era um, during the time of most of our New Testament story and all of Jesus' life. There were different Herods throughout that time. The greatest of all the Herods was the first one, and he was called Herod the Great, and he was the king. He was the Herod at the time that Jesus was born. The first Herod, Herod the Great, had a Jewish father and an Arab mother. But he did not have Jewish faith. 
He was very familiar because of his father. He was very familiar with the Jewish traditions, and he understood the Jewish culture, but he wasn't a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of his familiarity with Judaism, it was a natural uh, invitation from the Roman Empire to allow him to be the king of Judea, of that region. That area was part of the Roman Empire at that time. And so the Caesar said, uh, Herod, I'll allow you to be the king of that area, of, uh, of the Jerusalem uh, area. In fact, he was declared by Mark Antony, who's a, a Roman general, not the Hispanic singer, different guy. Uh, Mark Antony uh, declared Herod the Great, declared him king of the Jews, which is an interesting label, an interesting phrase that he was referred to. He was declared king of the Jews. We'll see the significance of that in the passage of scripture we're going to look at in a moment. But for those of you who are familiar with the Easter story, you might remember what was, what was labeled above Jesus in mockery. It said he is the king of the Jews later on when he was crucified. Herod truly was great. He was a great leader. He got that title uh, not out of sarcasm. He really did some uh, tremendous things for the region, for the Roman Empire in Jerusalem and in cities around there. He built uh, 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 stadiums for the Olympic Games that were having a surge in the area at that time, built monuments and uh, buildings and uh, theaters and uh, pagan altars and lots of, uh, lots of things in a number of different cities. The greatest achievement of Herod the Great is that he started the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, which was the center of worship for the Jews. And uh, King Herod did that in Jerusalem. He started about 20 years before Jesus was born, started to rebuild the temple. It wasn't finished until many years after Herod had passed away, until after Jesus had died even. Uh, It wasn't finished for quite some time. But he was the one who started that up and got that ball rolling. Herod was about 70 years old when Jesus was born. He had been the king for about 40 years, been quite, quite some time. And when he was 70, and when, Jesus entered, when the baby Jesus entered into the picture, things were not going quite so well for Herod the Great. He was losing favor with Caesar. Caesar was kind of tired of his antics, and we'll learn more about that in a little bit. Caesar had kind of grown tired of him. Uh, the Jews had, were uh, never really connected with him. He tried to gain favor with them by building the temple, but the, but the Jewish community... Uh, didn't care for them so much. We'll find out more about that in a moment too. See, isn't this exciting? And, uh, and he also had trouble with his own family. His wife and his uh, children were really doubting him, and his uncle and his brother actually made attempts to poison him and kill him. Okay, so this is the context that we find ourselves in as we enter into the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're spending our time this morning. Matthew chapter 2. And uh, even though King Herod doesn't have a significant role in Scripture, he's here in Matthew chapter 2, and he's also mentioned in Luke chapter 1, it's his role in the culture, in the cultural setting that we find our New Testament is very significant. The role of the Herods. They were the leaders. They were the ones who were in power in the area. And so understanding who they were and their background helps us understand the New Testament a little bit more. 
So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Now you can see, with an understanding of who Herod was, you can see how this was, this was the wrong question. This was a tricky question for the Magi to come in and say, We're looking for the real King of the Jews, you who perhaps think you're the King. This was a, this was a very uh, precarious question they were asking. Let me continue. He saw his star in the east and have come, uh, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, to say the least, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And Matthew goes on to quote from Micah in the Old Testament evidence that the Messiah would be born in this town called Bethlehem. This is very important to Matthew. Matthew is writing to the Jews. He's writing to the Jewish community. And it's very important for him throughout his whole gospel to connect the Jesus story with the Old Testament story. And particularly here in in what we're looking at this morning, the Christmas story is very important for him to connect it to the thousands of years of Jewish history. And so four times here in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew makes reference to an Old Testament passage. He quotes Micah, and then jump with me to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And this is where, if it was a movie, where you would cue the bad guy music. Dun, 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 dun. Because he had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He was disturbed and a deceptive man at, at this point. And here's uh, in the story where we get familiar with the Magi who go and visit with the baby Jesus and give the three gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it is from here that we get one of our beloved Christmas songs, We Three Kings of Orient Are, which is a little bit interesting because there's no evidence that there were three of them. There were three gifts, but we don't know how many were giving the gifts. And there's no evidence, actually, that they were kings. And so more accurately, the song should be, we undetermined number of astrologers of Orient. But it doesn't flow quite as nice, so the songwriters had to do something different with that. But that's just, that's just a side note. Uh, so the Magi go in, and they are warned by God not to go back the way they came. So they came, got uh, information from Herod, went to Bethlehem. God said, don't go that way. Do not interact with Herod. Whoop, they go the other way. Verse 13. When they had gone, the Magi... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Jump to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. There's the horrific part of Herod's story. And one might have an image of thousands of 
of two years and younger boys being slaughtered, which is not the case. We're talking about the town of Bethlehem, not very many. Most would estimate perhaps about 20 uh, boys would have been killed by, by Herod uh, in this act. But still, 20 boys, 20 innocent little boys killed because an insane man was, was threatened by the possibility that one of those boys might grow up and be a threat to, to his kingship. It's ludicrous. He's 70 years old. He dies soon after this. He's already Herod the Great. He's already built and done all his things. He's already created a, a, a huge legacy. He's been king for 40 years. And he's threatened by a baby who might grow up one day. He is absolutely possessed by his own greatness. He was already great, and he couldn't think of anything but having more and more and more greatness. Now contrast that to the other characters we've looked at in this short series of the Christmas cast. Last week, we, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the young, humble Mary, who in the Roman Empire... Certainly, she was a nobody. In Judea, she was a nobody. Even in Bethlehem, she was, a, she was a nobody. Little Mary, young Mary, 16 years old, 15 years old. And the last week, Marge talked about the shepherds. And might I say, he did a fantastic job last week, uh, Marge, talking about the shepherds. As these lowly nobodies, these shepherds to whom the angels came and said, we want you to go see the baby. Who are they? They're not even named who are they? Yet they make it in our nativity sets. They're part of our nativity sets that we have. Yet how many, I think I mentioned this last year too, but how many nativity sets have a Herod in them? I mean, how many precious moments collections are going to have a little porcelain Herod <laughs> with beautiful eyes and a little knife? I mean, it just doesn't happen. There is, there is this theme in Scripture that the, that the great will become small. The small will become great. First will be last. The last will be first. In the New Testament, Jesus is consistent about this. Greatness and smallness has to be revisited in the kingdom of God. It reminds me of a quote from Mother Teresa. And if you think about her life, this quote just has all the more momentum. Small things done with great love will change the world. Small things done with great love will change the world. We all want to be part of something great. It's a natural thing within us. We want to participate in something significant, something great. It's natural, and and it's a beautiful thing. But for most of us, most of our minutes, most of our days, most of our holidays are more about small things than great things. We have way more small things that we have the opportunity to do things with than the great things. Small things done with great love will change the world. Never underestimate the power of a loving and intentional thing, of a small, loving, intentional thing. Now, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with great things. I mean, there is a place for great things. There has been in the history of God's story. Moses walked into the palace of Pharaoh walked into the palace because he was called by God and went right up to the Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world, and said, let my people go. Free these Israelites who are your slaves. Free them. 
That's a great thing. That's a big thing that he did. In the New Testament, Peter steps out of the boat and walks on water. That's a great thing. That's an amazing thing. In our more recent history, last century, Martin Luther King gathers hundreds of thousands of people and does the March on Washington. That's a great thing. Some of you, perhaps, have very recently done a great thing with our Christmas outreach offering. Maybe some of you, for the first time this year, or or in the most significant way this year, you gave towards our Christmas outreach offering, knowing that it will go outside of these walls to bless other people. You gave in ways that are going to affect you this Christmas, that are going to impact you, because you felt God had called you to do that. That is a great and wonderful thing. There's a place for that. Sometimes God calls us to do great things for God. But that's the key for God. That's where the great things become truly great things in eternity, when they're done for God. Herod, on the other hand, was obsessed with his own greatness. And everything he had to do was about his own greatness, his own name. I have a friend in in Cincinnati named Justin, and he used to do imitations of people. But what was so entertaining about his imitations is that they were all the same. And so, like, for instance, he would, he would do an imitation of Alan, and he'd say, Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm Alan. I'm from Canada, and I have a hockey stick. Look at me, everybody. And then he'd say, here's my impression of Marsh. If he were here, he'd say, look at me, everybody. I'm Marsh. I play the piano. I have my name on a Grammy. Look at me, everybody. Or he might say, here's my impression of Juno. Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm Juno. I say inappropriate things from the stage. Look at me, everybody. (laughs) Now, I know a good uh, number of you uh, mature people here in the room are thinking, that's really goofy and juvenile. But here's the thing that I'm confident in. There are some of you here in the room, you're going to do that this afternoon. (laughs) You're going to do it because it's a whole lot of fun. It's just a whole, whole lot of fun to do that deal. So here's Herod who was possessed with his own greatness. Look at me, everybody. I'm Herod. I built the temple in Jerusalem. I'm great. Look at me. His last request, demand as a king, his last demand was insane. When he was on his deathbed, he said, the thing I want you to do as soon as I die is to gather the leaders and the elders from the cities around us, gather them all together, put them in one place, and burn them to death. Because I want the whole region to mourn. Even if they're not mourning me, I want them to remember and mourn my death. Is that crazy? He was possessed with his own greatness. Fortunately, his last demand didn't happen. That, that, that didn't take place. But the, but, but the concept is there that, that whether we do great things or small things, it's not about our own fame. It's not about making our own name great. It's about lifting the name of Jesus for those of us who are followers of him. John the Apostle in, in his gospel, chapter 3, He says, he must become greater, I must become less, John says, and models for us. Small things done with great love will change the world. 
See, and, and that's the idea. I just love that phrase because it's about changing the world, not running from it or escaping it or pretending it doesn't exist or just staying as far away from the world as we possibly can. That, that's, that's not what we're called to. King Herod had one response, had a very consistent response for anything in the world that he didn't like. He killed it. When he first came to power, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were part of the Sanhedrin. You may have remembered that word from the, from the Easter story. They were the leaders of the, of the Jewish community. And when King Herod first came to power, he killed the entire Sanhedrin. Killed them all, wiped them all out, because he was king. And he said, let's get some new ones who understand who I am and what my role is here. There's a historian, a Jewish historian named Josephus, who was, who was Jewish, not a follower of Christ, but is one of, if not the main source outside of the Bible for us to understand the first century. Josephus was a historian who wrote about Christians and about Jesus from an outside perspective. He's got some of the most fascinating stuff written outside of the, outside of the Bible in terms of the New Testament story. And he uh, spends a fair amount of time talking about Herod because there was a significant role in the first century. And he says that Herod would dress up in civilian clothes and walk among the people in disguise and listen to their conversations. And whenever he caught wind of any conspiracy or any negative talk about him and his leadership, he would identify the ones and have them killed. King Herod married a Jewish woman in order to help uh, connect with the Jewish community. He got false accusations that she had been unfaithful to him. It was not true, but, they were, but he believed them or acted on them. Killed her. He killed uh, some of his own sons out of suspicions that they, they might be doing something against him. This is why eventually uh, uh, some had plotted to get rid of him. And, and I mean, it was just, it was just this, this terrible, consistent plan. Just kill him. Just kill him. That was his plan. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his uncles. He killed so many uh, number of people. It's no wonder that his response in Matthew chapter 2 is, oh, another threat? Just kill him. Just kill them all. I mean, that is his response. And it sounds ridiculous to us. It's just, it's obviously inhumane. It is this ridiculous response to the difficulties of life. But metaphorically, how many times do we encounter things in life that we don't like and we just want to kill it. We just want to get rid of it. I don't mean physical death. I mean we just want to cut it off, get rid of it. When we are having a struggle with an interpersonal relationship, do we do the hard work of working on that relationship and having those extra talks and etc., or do we just kill it? Do we do the hard work of learning a new skill at work because there's this transition and because of the economy you've got to take on more or have you got to take on a role that you have, weren't originally trained for? Do you do the work of learning that new skill or do you just quit and walk away? When you're faced with the reality of the tension in your marriage 
And it's either been, either been plateaued for a dangerously long time or it's been spiraling down. And the home is becoming more and more this place where you do not want to go for peace. Do you do the hard work of leaning into that and doing all that it takes to get some help to work on that? Or do we just kill it? We just get a divorce. We're supposed to change the world, not escape from it, not, not run from it. If you're a new believer, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last few weeks or the last few months, don't abandon your friends or your family or your coworkers. Don't, don't walk away from them because they have a different faith or whatever the deal is. Don't kill those relationships. We're to be part of changing and having a positive influence in the world. If, you, if we walk away, then those we had relationship with would look and perhaps think that we are snobs or that we think we're holier than thou. Look at me, everybody. Or maybe they will look at you and think that you think you're so great that you're better than. And that's not what we want to communicate. Small things done with great love will change the world, not, not escape, not separate from our relationships. This Christmas, small things done with great love, I believe, can change your family. Small things done with great love can change your family. I mean, whatever your family situation looks like, it's friends getting together or, or family come from all over the country or whatever and gather up. Just let go of that perfect, great, amazing Christmas. Let go of that perfect Christmas setting, Christmas table. Let go of the, the insatiable shopping to go and get things for people who don't need any of that stuff. Let go of the financial burden of buying things in, in, in this last week in preparation for Christmas with money that you don't have. Just, just let go of, of those things. Because you know what's the most beautiful parts of family and Christmas and life? It's the small stuff. The small stuff is what really matters. It's, it's that little moment where you are at a family gathering and you're not going to take the bait you are not going to enter into a negative conversation again with that family member that talks negatively about another family member and kind of continue this spiral that's been going on for years and years. That moment of saying, you know, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to talk positively about other folks. That is a small thing done with great love. Maybe it's a small thing. It's a little relationship at a, at a staff party or some other gathering where you sit down and you actually ask honest, deep, interested questions with somebody Maybe somebody that nobody else has been talking to. And that little moment there, that small moment there, could be the most significant part of your Christmas. That small little moment. It's the small stuff so often that matters. I remember when my kids were littler, they were more interested in the box that toys came in than the actual toy themselves. They open it up and put the toy aside and then put the box over the head and climb in it. You, you don't understand what I'm talking. Remember with have little kids or if you currently do have little kids, and I always I always would think, why don't I just wrap up a box and save myself thirty bucks on this stupid plastic thing? I always wonder about that. 
So sometimes I find myself focusing on or going after the great things, the big things, and missing out on the small things that are happening right around me. Thinking about something great, and I have a child who wants to interact with me just right here, right here in this moment. And, and I can't do this because I've got something real great in my head over here. And I go in and out of doing this well. One, one thing um, that, that, I, that I have done well the last few years, it's actually one of my highlights of Christmas. One of the things I most look forward to at Christmas is I do an annual daddy date with my daughter. I have two boys, and then my youngest is a little girl. And, then since, and uh, since she was two years old, we've done a daddy date. She gets a new little dress, and we will go out and have our picture taken together at, a, at the same photo place. They do this nine ninety five thing uh, every year. And then they say for $150, you can get a whole bunch of photos. And I just say, I just want the one. And so I get the one. And then we go out for lunch or dinner, depending what the plan is. And then we'll go to some kind of show. We'll do a puppet show or a, a local play, or we'll go see a movie together or whatever. This daddy date, we, we do it every uh, year. And I get a picture every year. Here's a little example just to be, this was two years ago. So this was, uh, this was uh, Daddy Date 2009. That's a small thing, and there's a whole lot of great love happening in those little moments. And I cherish that, and my hope is that we'll still do Daddy Dates when she's 29. Somewhere around Christmas. It's the week after Christmas, somewhere in there. I'm confident they'll get more and more expensive. I get that. I'm starting to save up now. Uh, but let, let me tell you what, what I think is the, is the most beautiful part of our annual daddy date. It's the role of mom. Because my wife is the organized one in our family. Thank God. And so she does a tremendous amount of research and, and, and work and help and find out here's what you could do. And then if you had this timing and this would all work out, she's the one who helps identify a dress and, uh, you know, for her, not for me, and... Uh, and she will uh, fix uh, uh, Lila's hair some years and get it all curly and get it so that it's just right for the picture. And so the timing will all work out. And sometimes she'll, she'll uh, fix my hair, get it to work right uh, uh, for the whole deal. She does all this work. And my wife, she doesn't get her name on the title of the event. It's Daddy Date 2009. She doesn't get her name on that. She doesn't uh, get to be in that photo. And every year, she loves me and loves our daughter in small, beautiful ways to say, I want to help make this happen. And that, and the, and the, the, in the beautiful way that she says, small things done with great love will change our family. And this year, I've grown to appreciate more her role in this and how this all happens. In what ways can we participate in small, small things that will have great impact? Finally, small things done with great love will change your heart. Only you and God know the status of your heart this Christmas, where you are. Is it vibrant and excited and wakes up in the morning excited about what God may want to do with you and your relationships that day? Or this season, is it a little cold? Is it a little calloused? Only you and God truly know the status of your heart. And one of the realities of us in this country, in this city, 
in this community is that greatness can be a challenge for us because greatness sometimes gets in the way of our reminder of our need for God and because of the many ways that we get to be great here. We sometimes miss out on the small things that remind us of the beauty and the greatness of God. If your Christmas experience is such that you can go out and buy whatever you want for whoever you want, and the only thing is just deciding if that's a good way to use that money this year, or if your Christmas experience is that you get to be the host because you're the one with the most, then it can be hard to have a Christmas like that and to say, yes, God, I need you this Christmas. Okay, that's, that, that Jesus talks about this in the New Testament so much. He talks about money so much because it is a heart issue. It is a heart issue where your treasure is, there your heart is also. At one point he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to make it into heaven. In what way are we acknowledging and celebrating the small things in the midst of our economic greatness? In what way are we, are we embracing the small things in order to be able to say, I need you, God. I need baby Jesus. I need to be reminded it was that baby that grew up to be the savior of the world. I need that this year. Herod was great. History will tell us that. Evidence of what he had done through his tenure would tell us that. Herod was great. But he was greatly disturbed because he missed the power and the beauty of the small things that were going on around him. May we not do that this Christmas. What small things can you do this year that will change your heart? What small things can you do with great love that will change your heart? We're going to give you a few moments to just reflect on that. We're going to do a couple songs here as we close. If you're new with us, we have a number of different opportunities for you to participate in worship around the room. And those things are listed in your program if you'd like more information about what's going to happen over the next few moments. It's just an opportunity to respond. As we launch into that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, thank you for the beauty of your story. That no other story of any other deity, any other God, any other higher power came in the form of a little baby. You did not come as this great, uh, amazing king with an entourage when you entered the world. You entered the world as a small little baby in the arms of a young nobody of a girl. And so, Father, maybe in that story you're trying to tell us, don't miss the small stuff. This Christmas, may we lean into, may we celebrate the small stuff. May we do small things with great love so that we can be a part of your change in the world and bringing your kingdom here. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.